For great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts, the TNT Shop is now open at TNTradio.live. Critically analyzing national affairs. You're with David Curtin on today's News Talk, TNT. Hello and welcome to the David Curtin Show. I'm David Curtin and this is today's News Talk, TNT. Now, Sadiq Khan, as you probably know, has been the mayor of London for nearly eight years. I am no fan of his. That doesn't, you don't need to know too much to know that. But I questioned him many, many times when I was on the London Assembly for five years. Um, he may not get elected in the next London elections, which are later on this year, because the voting system has changed and people are looking at voting him out. He's unquestionably one of the most unpopular mayors of London uh, that there has been. Uh, the voting system now is going to be a purely first past the post system, whereas before there were two rounds, uh, all the votes except for the first two candidates were reallocated so that that made it almost certain that uh, he would be elected over the last two times and potentially this time, but the system has changed. Despite that, Sadiq Khan, perhaps knowing he's on his way out, has left London with a black present. What he has done this week is decided to rename the London Overground with woke names. He's divided it into six different sections and called them things which I would never imagine calling any particular transport system or line that there is. Most people's reaction to this was why spend so much money on doing this when London is already in a huge amount of debt? Like most uh, local councils and the national government, London has a pile of debt mounting up to nearly £16 billion at the moment, if you count the debt that is owed by the Metropolitan Police, Transport for London, the London Fire Brigade and City Hall itself. Nevertheless, he's decided to spend £6.6 million renaming the London Overground, which no one really wanted renamed. He said he's done some consultations on this. Um, and what he's come up with are the most woke things you can think of. Um, they pander to the ideologies which are related of feminism, LGBT and Black Lives Matter critical race theory. Let's have a look at some of the names which the overground is being changed to. Part of it is going to be called the Lioness Line. Now, I've got nothing against lionesses, but apparently this relates to the England women's football team. In the blurb and the spiel about this, he says uh, the Lioness Line honours the historic achievements and lasting legacy created by the England women's football team that continues to inspire and empower the next generation of women and girls in sport. OK, that's nothing too wrong with that. But this is something that's only existed for a very, very short amount of time. And it excludes men. Why is he doing that? Joey Barton, however, the famous and funny footballer, I would say, has quipped back on X. Will the Lioness line go at a slower speed and be error strewn to make it more realistic? 
maybe a little bit edgy, but I quite like Joey's style and his criticism of Sadiq Khan there. We also have another line that panders to the feminist agenda. This is the suffragette line. It says here, the suffragette line celebrates how the working class movement in the East End fought for votes for women and paved the way for women's rights. Now, if you have been educated in a state school which has been influenced by academia over the last 50 years or so, you will have heard of the suffragettes, but you probably will not have heard of the suffragists, but people are beginning to talk about them again. My problem with this is the suffragists were a much larger and more respected movement that included both men and women seeking to get emancipation for everybody in the early 20th century who didn't have a vote, women and working class men alike. Before 1918, the only people that could vote in the United Kingdom were the landed gentry, men with land. Working class men were excluded, all women were excluded. But by focusing just on the suffragists and not mentioning the suff sorry, by focusing just on the suffragettes, I must say, it's confusing here, and not mentioning the suffragists, the working class men who fought against the larger body of very respectable women are written out of history. And this is something that needs to be addressed, and that could have been done here. Some of the other lines we've got here are the Mildmay line. He says about this, this is about the Mildmay Hospital, which is valued and respected um, for its work with the LGBTQ plus community. The Windrush line, which celebrates the Windrush generation who continue to shape and enrich London's cultural and social identity today. The Windrush, of course, was the first boat bringing migrants to the um, from the Caribbean to the UK after the Second World War. A little bit controversial because it opened up the era of mass rapid immigration. Now, no one would begrudge anyone on that boat for coming over to seeking to work in this country. But what has happened over the 75 years since then, with successive governments in recent times opening up mass rapid immigration, perhaps this is something that would be best to avoid when talking about renaming your train lines that everybody has to see every day. And then there's the Weaver line. Now, again, with this, he says and starts with something quite good. The Weaver line. Um, runs through areas of London known for their textile trade. He could have stopped there, but he can't help himself. He goes on to say, shaped over the centuries by diverse migrant communities and individuals. This is clearly influenced by the agenda of diversity, equality and inclusion, which is part of the cultural Marxist agenda, which looks at society in terms of oppressor victim narratives and everything has to be changed in order to celebrate fabricated victim groups rather than celebrating the main indigenous culture. There are so many things that he could have picked from British history which would not have had any controversy whatsoever. We could have had the Churchill line, 
the Wilberforce line, the Nelson line, the Wellington line. You could have stuck to some of the old names like the East London line or the North London line, which have now got new names. But Sadiq Khan can't help himself in doing that. We need to boot him out and change what he's done before they stick forever. This is today's News Talk TNT. Giving you what you want. I want the fact. Today's News Talk Radio TNT. Welcome back to The David Curtin Show. This is today's News Talk TNT, and I have with me uh, once again the fabulous Gemma Cooper to have a look at today's news headlines. Welcome to the show, Gemma. Thank you very much, David. And it's certainly a topic that's ignited many of our UK hosts here on TNT today, the renaming of those lines. Uh, just talking with Rick Munn and Natalie Cheel on Open Line just a few hours ago about this very story. It's certainly uh, stoked the the fans of uh, controversy, shall we say. And I'm personally myself, as I commented back then, uh, just a few hours ago, you know, the Windrush line, you know, if only they'd thrown some money at the, the compensation scheme for people who, you know, were wrongly deported under the Windrush scandal a few years ago in the UK. They came over in good faith and they had the, didn't know they had the wrong documentation to be able to stay here. They weren't helped at all. Eventually got compensation. But I think, you know, it cost a huge amount of money to rename these lines. I think that per personally, if I was a member of the Windrush generation, I would I would rather have that money in the compensation scheme than thrown at a multi-million rebranding uh, of stations that were already perfectly fine. Yeah, and another thing that people said is why spend all that money on this line when you could spend the money on trying to make the trains run on time and provide a better service? You know, one of the things that people say needs to be done is we need security cameras on the central line because that's the only line that doesn't have them. So why not spend the money on doing something that which would increase the safety of women uh, on that line, which is something that people have been calling for uh, for a long time, rather than doing this woke rebranding of some of these uh, lines in the overground, which don't need to be renamed whatsoever. I just wonder, and it's just a quick talking point, you know, before I get into the some of the head, uh, the breaking story, actually, um, is that where does this policy come from? It's a bit like ULES. We know that the WHO are having a good look at the ULES schemes, the ultra low emission schemes in London that Khan has rolled out despite widespread public protest and activism, including people camping out outside his own house. Um, but the WHO have said, we're watching the situation with interest. He has to succeed because we want to roll it out to other mayoral cities in the world. So you wonder about about the renaming and the rebranding and all the money that's gone into it. Did it come from somewhere else? Did, did people say, you know, Siddi, can we have a quiet word in your ear? We'd quite like you to do this because if you do this, other mayors around the world will follow suit and, and it, it kind of stokes the flames of dissent and opposition and, and, and you know, why, why on earth did you do this, Sadiq? Nobody asked for it. Nobody wanted it. Six million pounds of our money. Do you know what I mean? It Has it got a kind of hidden hidden hand above it? You do wonder with these people, you know, they're kind of signed up to globalist agendas. Are they just carrying out globalist policies? Yeah, I, I don't doubt that. I mean, there's no actual proof of that, but we do know he is involved in other things. He set up the Commission for Diversity in the Public Spaces just before the last London mayoral election back in 2020. And that was to look at renaming roads and removing old statues. And this totally goes along with that agenda, actually tr actually re rewriting history, if you like, to write out 
the history that we've had and accepted over the last centuries. And as society, as the demographics of society have changed, undoubtedly through mass immigration, and London particularly has been subject to that, now I think it's um, uh, just 36% of London in the last census in 2021 were white British. There's 52% white, including Europeans and so on, but that's going to drop down to a minority. And London is going to be maybe uh, the first large metropolis in Europe to be hyper-diverse, a city with no one dominant ethnic group. And as the demographics have changed, you have people in power saying, well, look at how it's changed. We need to then rename things in order to reflect what the city is now, rather than to celebrate the actual history of London over uh, centuries and millennia. And this looks like the agenda that's going on here. Yes, and I wouldn't wager it's an agenda that's going on in other cities around the world too, but London's got a very esoteric history. Uh, there's a very brilliant book called London, A History by Peter Aykroyd. I would urge anyone to read that. It's a very academic book, but it goes right into the history of London. Uh, and it, yeah, it's worth a read. But yeah, these globalist policies that are designed to kind of uh, stymie us in terms of context, who we are, where we came from, all that type of thing, it's not it's not by accident. It has an effect on us as culturally. Uh, it destabilizes us because if you don't have a firm foundation of your history, you, you're, you're always kind of in, in, in a, on the back foot, aren't you? And I don't think it does any of the cultures any good. You know, it's great to, to um, have multiculturalism in so many ways, but, it, you know, you have to have the context of it. If you don't have the context of it, nobody's really sure where they stand. And I think that leads to instability in itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously wrote in the Gulag Archipelago, in order to destroy a nation or in order to destroy a people, you must first sever their roots. And this is what's going on through people who are activists, Alinskyite activists, cultural Marxist activists. They're getting into positions of power. When they get there, they seem to be more concerned with changing things to do with our culture and society than actually making the trains run on time, which is why there's this huge announcement about renaming these lines but not much seeming to be done about actually making the trains run faster and more efficiently and getting people from A to B as quickly and smoothly and safely uh, as possible. And this is when I was on the London Assembly. I was astounded. I thought, well, OK, you can perhaps you can make art woke. You know, that's not too difficult. I don't like it. But how can you bring wokery into transport? How can you bring wokery into science? But they've managed. They're doing this through you know, renaming things here. Um, and, and also with the, the whole climate agenda goes along with that. They're focused on walking and cycling rather than getting people <laughs> to be able to use buses and trains, uh, which go fast and get you where you want to go. Um, so, um, again, if I were on the London Assembly, I'd be questioning this. But you know, I would say with this. A very interesting thing is the reaction from the what I call the fake conservative party. Now, they've criticized him as well. But what they say is that they would open the lines up to sponsorship, which I think is almost as bad in the other direction. So instead of having the Lioness line and the Windrush line, you would have with them 
the Vodafone line and the Facebook line and the Deliveroo line and things like that, because they would want corporations to come and sponsor them. And then they would give them the rights to put their names uh, on the London uh, transport map. Oh, my God. No, no. We've already got enough of that, haven't we, with football stadiums? No, 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 no. No more corporations anywhere, which is worse, <laughs> which is worse. Work at local corporations. There's the dilemma for a Friday. I'll just bring a brief brief headline there because I know we're coming up to the break. Is that uh, one of Putin's most you know, outspoken opponents, the leader of the Russian opposition, um, has died in prison, 47-year-old Alexei Navalny, uh, he's, he went for a walk, allegedly felt unwell uh, and has died. A lot of people are saying it's a state-sanctioned murder. Uh, Russia is coming out saying, well, the West will draw its own conclusions on this death. But there's no doubt about it that he was a, a leading figure in the opposition against Putin. He was in prison. He's been in prison since 2021, allegedly poisoned in 2020 when he was in Siberia uh, and he fell uh, unconscious on a flight back to Moscow. Um, very outspoken, um, you know, subject to numerous, what he said were political persecutions. Um, and he's now he's now died. Uh, Rishi Sunak has paid tribute. Uh, Zelensky has come straight out. He's at the security conference in Munich at the moment. He's come straight out and saying it's obvious that Putin is behind this. As I say, Russia and the Kremlin are saying that the West has already jumped to its own conclusions. There's no formal uh, cause of death as yet. Many people are saying he was tortured to death in prison. This story is only broken really in the last hour. So lots and lots of detail and speculation are coming out about this man. Um, he was definitely uh, Putin's most vocal opponent and the leader of the opposition party, a bit like Imran Khan, though, leader of a party, but languishing in prison, but 47 years old. So it's a very early death for Alexei Navalny. Thank you, Gemma, for bringing us that story. This is today's News Talk TNT. TNT's Chris Smith is a time for Joe to go. Now, we've asked this on a number of occasions over the past couple of years. As a matter of fact, we were asking it before the last election. However, Friday's special prosecutor's comments from that report on the president's memory lapses, including the fact that he didn't know when he became VP or even ended being VP, moving into being president, inspired a burst of, well, age and mental related commentary. I think that's a polite way to put it. They jumped on him. And it puts a big red fat circle around what I've been telling you is the paramount dilemma facing voters for this election in November. How can we possibly put such a lame duck elderly man back into the White House for four more years? I would have thought nine months is far too long. And that's what he's got to go. Chris Smith on today's News Talk TNT. TNT is an independent global news talk station that does what others only say they do. TNT is a live radio and TV broadcaster that simply tells the truth 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No one in the world does what we do. Crisscrossing the globe, providing credible news and opinion all day and all night. In two and a half years, TNT has become a credible and exciting platform with brilliant hosts and staff. It's a critical time, and we must continue to call out the misinformation and propaganda from mainstream media and their powerful sponsors. We're now appealing to our many friends and supporters around the world to go to TNTradio.live and make a small donation to TNT while we seek the right investors to continue our important mission. Are we on the air? Am I on the air? You're on the air. 
On the air 24-7, your news talk giant, ENT. Hello, welcome back to the David Curtin Show. I'm David Curtin, and this is today's News Talk TNT. Now, I am delighted to have with me today Eloise Schultz, who's been on TNT before with some other hosts. I know Eloise, I have to confess, because she's a member of the Heritage Party, and she is the Heritage Party's young adult spokesman. Um, Welcome to the show, Eloise. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Nice, great to have you on. I know you've got lots of things to say and you gave some fantastic speeches um, at the conference uh, uh, that we had in September and many, many other places. But you're the young adult spokesman. And uh, for for young adults, they don't really get in, they're not known for getting involved in politics too much these days. It tends to be, you think of older people who get involved and vote more. But um, why should young people get involved in politics um, as as a thing? Um, I mean, first of all, it is, of course, hugely important. I think that there are a small minority of young people getting involved in politics or what they consider to be politics. when they're pushing the agendas that are actually working against our own generation. And I think the majority of us young adults need to get involved in politics in order to counteract that very loud minority. Um, I think we do need to grow in numbers. Um, People who are staying out of it is easier um, for us than than all the heat that we get in the labeling, but it's its own problem. Um, and it it just stops our voice from being as powerful because if I say, well, I'm speaking for my generation and the rest of the generation is silent, it doesn't have as much credibility. Yeah, it's very difficult when you get involved in politics because you do put your head above the parapet and then people think, oh, well, there you go. You've spoken up. You're a target. And people think that you're fair game to actually have a pop at, which I don't really think is fair at all because you're you're still a human being and you're actually just trying to make the world a better place, if you like. But, you know, as um, you know, a, a young person, a young adult, what are the main things that are affecting young adults, young people in the country today that they could change if they got involved? I think the absolute biggest thing that is affecting us way more than we realise is the immigration issue. And that was the very first thing that we have been trained not to complain about because, um, you know, from, from a very young age, we were warned against all this, don't be racist, don't be racist. It's racist to not like people coming into your country um, and it, it sort of teaches us to reject all the actual negative impacts that it is really having on my generation. If you look at the housing crisis um, and one in six young people don't expect to own a home before the age of 30 and you just can't build enough homes for over 600,000 people coming in every year and that's only the ones that are documented. That doesn't include all of the illegals at the small boats and the smuggling going on. Um, mm. it's, it's really damaging our prospects way more than we realize. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's impossible, isn't it? You just need to do the maths. I mean, anyone, even a child could tell you that. You you cannot have so many people coming into the country. And then we're building about 150,000, I wouldn't say houses, I would say housing units, because a lot of them are in these horrible, you know, um, Jenga-type blocks, which look really ugly and soulless these days. I wouldn't want to live in one of them, um, to be honest. And so, so they all go immediately to people coming over um, who are migrants in terms of numbers. We now have today, or yesterday, this week, the, the news that the Home Office has actually um, requisitioned 16,000 homes in the private rental sector in order to house people coming across illegally on boats. So it's not just people wanting to buy a house, it's people wanting to rent a house um, that are in, in big trouble. But um, what, what other services do you, do you think are um, affected by mass immigration? It's not just housing, it's uh, are there other things that you see as well that um, young people have a, a problem in, in getting access to? Absolutely, um, I think it puts a massive strain on policing. Um, and affecting our safety. I think that the, the gangs that are coming over um, affect women's safety in particular. Um, so yeah, like I said, it puts a massive strain on policing. Um, it puts a strain on our hospitals because, I mean, I do think that the people who come here illegally, they do struggle to make that journey. They're not coming here in the best of conditions. It is putting a strain on our health industry as well the very basics yeah. that yeah. we need to survive you know we need police to protect our safety we need a health service to protect our well-being and we need somewhere to live and all of these things are being damaged by the rapid mass immigration yeah absolutely and and when you say this you know is this is just normal common sense but People still throw out the accusation, oh, you're racist or you're bigoted. Has anyone said anything like that to you? Um, I remember in um, the election while I was in school, my my secondary school held a mock election. And um, very sadly, uh, the Heritage Party didn't uh, exist at the time. So I was in the mock UKIP. Uh, uh -huh. And a lot of my classmates were saying I was racist for that. Yeah. Wow. Just, just for, you know, you know, UKIP was an established party. It won uh, the 2014 Euro elections. It was the, the biggest party in the UK in that year in terms of votes. And yet people still throw the accusation at you that you're racist for, for supporting positions which make absolute common sense. I mean, this is, this is absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, Eloise, don't go away. We'll be back after this news break. This is today's News Talk, TNT. Now, TNT Radio News. It's hot, tea. It's very hot. It's hot news. So hot. Yeah, it's hot news. Hot news. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Prolific pedophiles convicted of the most heinous crimes against infants and preteen children could be executed in the US state of Idaho under a new bill passed by House officials. Russian President Vladimir Putin's told the world that his country is close to developing vaccines to treat cancer. And the Kremlin has rejected wild reports out of the US, claiming Russia is planning on deploying nuclear weapons in space. Don't miss a thing. Be sure to download the TNT radio app from either the Apple App Store or Google Play so you can easily listen live to us anywhere, anytime. Available right now to download. Keeping you up to speed on TNT radio.
Welcome back to the David Curtin Show. This is today's News Talk TNT. And I have with me Eloise Schultz, who is the Heritage Party's young adult spokesman. Welcome back, Eloise. Now, we were talking earlier about immigration and housing. Those are very big issues. But I know you've also, uh, over the years, been to a number of the freedom rallies where people were protesting against lockdowns and then later on uh, injections. And uh, you've been quite outspoken about that uh, as well. What, what first um, alerted you? How did you first come around to the opinion that lockdowns were not a good idea? Um, well, when I first heard about them, really, I thought that um, locking people in their houses is just not a very good thing to do. I realised straight away that it was going to do a lot more damage than it ever prevented. Um, and But I did slightly I, I was quite optimistic that it would be over in the original three weeks I think they said that that it would be and then as soon as it passed that three-week mark I said to myself no something's going on here something's got to be done because it, it's just as soon as the person you voted for lies like that all trust is gone you've got to stand up and say well no this isn't what our country is about um yeah, they said two weeks or three weeks to flatten the curve didn't they but then that was a lie because when the three weeks were up they kept it going for another three months and uh all the terrible effects that happened to people and businesses were, were absolutely appalling they yeah, did I'm and sure. the effects um have not stopped happening even like to this day you see kids coming through the school system that struggle with social interaction they didn't have those crucial early experiences the lockdown babies you you can identify them just you know on meeting them you can see the damage that it's done it's really horrible to see no it, it, it's it's not it's more than a tragedy it's it's a crime isn't it because the whole generation's education their socialization has been messed up and you see um you know people who have had two years of their early lives not seeing people's faces they because everyone had to cover their face with a mask um they haven't had access to normal expressions normal sort of attachment to their parents as they had before which is has done terrible damage i, I think you know people are still we we really as you say have um not really understood the long-term effects of lockdown so I mean, we need to make sure this never ever happens again and then there's the injections as well i mean you you were you were also against these injections that were were put into people as well weren't you have you um what what are your opinions of those yes i was very strongly against um the measures such as um nhs workers having to have it as a requirement to keep their jobs uh, care workers as well um you know, all through lockdown, it was all clapped for carers. And then as soon as those same carers didn't want to take this experimental injection, they were losing their jobs. It's absolutely outrageous. And that is what I was most vocally against. But I do think that it was dangerous and irresponsible for them to introduce these jabs while they were still in the short term data stage. There is no long term safety data on mRNA. It has only existed for 10 years and the inventor of it has spoken out against the vaccines being used as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I, uh, we really need to get to a point where we say this, this is never, <laughs> this should never, ever happen again. And um, I, I think people are waking up to this now, which is a good thing. Um, but more people need to wake up. And I you think more people need to get involved in politics as well. Because, uh, you know, as I say, uh, very often, it's good to go out and, and go to, to rallies and, and protest on the street. It's good to make videos about this. But if we really want to stop it and be sure that this never happens again we've got to get into positions of power we've got to get into councils we've got to get into parliament and you've been a candidate before haven't you you've stood uh in a local election um how was that and how was it uh being a candidate uh this year it was, it was last year wasn't it in may uh 2023 what, what were your experiences of being a candidate Yes, it was absolutely fantastic being a candidate in the local council elections. Um, I had a really great experience with canvassing. Um, it was great practice. Uh, there were a couple of people that were rude, obviously, but overall it was a massively positive experience. People were really refreshed to see uh, a young person getting involved in politics. Um, I, I was only 69 votes behind the Labour candidate, which was really encouraging for me. Um, I found that uh, really positive um obviously producing the leaflets the thought i was putting into that um helped me feel like a really strong candidate if i felt as if if i got in i could do the job and um i think that a lot more people are capable of being involved at the local level than they think they are um, mm. I think people could really surprise themselves with um, how much good they can do getting into politics. Absolutely. And uh, it's a really good thing to get involved in. Anyone can do it. And, uh, you know, I say to people that I first got involved in politics about 10 years ago. That was the first time I stood for Parliament. If I can do it, I was just minding my own business as a chemistry teacher back at the time. Anyone can do it. And, uh, you know, uh, it's fantastic that you've stepped up and you've done it. And uh, and and that was your first time doing it. And it, it was great. And you had some good experiences as well. And uh, I think you, you are going to stand as well in the general election coming up which is very exciting um, as well what messages would you like to give out to your local people or, or anybody um when you stand in the general election i think um messages issues for westminster would be to end mass immigration um and also to um leave the who like leave global government organizations because at the end of the day, this country is a democracy. The power should be with the people. And if we subscribe to all of these global organizations, the power will no longer be with the people. Um, I think that's a really key issue that not enough people are focusing on at the moment. Um, the third thing that I would choose would be um, protecting minors from um, transition, gender transition, uh, surgeries and hormones. Um, and within that sort of sphere, protecting women from, um, I hesitate to say protecting women from uh, transgender, protecting women from males who might take advantage of the situation um, right. with malintent and invade our spaces. Protecting women's spaces is how I would summarize that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, they're, they're men, you know, I, I, I understand that because we're so bombarded with this new language, trans women, trans men, but this is made up language. This is, this is, this is unreality. Um, they are men who dress up, you know, in women's clothes, put on women's makeups. Maybe they've had some surgery, but it doesn't change them from being men, same vice versa. And, um, you know, absolutely, we need to protect uh, women in particular uh, from men who want to go into women's changing rooms and women's wards and women's toilets uh, and take advantage of the situation. Absolutely. Now, do, we haven't got too much longer, but I understand that you are actually going on a protest against this at uh, the University of East Anglia soon. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and what you're going to be doing there? Yes, so the protest is on the 6th of May. It is organised by Students Against Tyranny, um, who I've, I communicate with, I work with them. Um, and they've set up a protest with all female speakers about um, the UEA Sports Centre who are allowing males into uh, the female changing rooms. They have horrendous sexual assault statistics on that campus and it's very clear that the staff and the management there do not care about the safety of their female students um so we're going there to protest it and in this issue in particular with um these males that are being allowed into female spaces um it's not just that they are physically capable of overpowering those students but being being as transgenderism is medically defined as a mental illness, these individuals are not even necessarily stable and these girls are being asked to change in front of them and allow them into a space where these girls are vulnerable. Uh, I, it blows my mind that people could even think like this and allow this to happen. It's it's it, it's to any right-minded person, this is absolutely wrong and it needs to be stopped. So, you know, Eloise, you are doing a fantastic thing, being involved in politics and also being involved in activism for freedom and for common sense and standing up against this transgender agenda. And I hope that there will be many, many more people like you who are watching this and are inspired to get involved in politics. So, Eloise, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I wish I could talk to you for a lot longer, but that's all we have time for today um, in this session. This is today's News Talk TNT. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. State propaganda media has once again outed themselves as pure partisans, just parroting the party line with their criticism of Tucker Carlson's interview of Vladimir Putin. Carlson gave a pretty hard-hitting interview, called Putin out on the Wall Street Journal reporter that is in custody, saying that he should be released, having that conversation. But more importantly, getting Putin's perspective on the Ukraine war and why he chose to initiate it. That's called journalism. Yet none of our journalists seem to be the least bit interested in committing journalism. They're more interested in calling for Tucker to be arrested on the tarmac when his plane returns to the United States. It's absolutely disgraceful how these people claim the moral high ground when they're nothing more than moral midgets. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for today's News Talk TNT. The next time you think you can illegally handle your mobile phone while driving and get away with it, think again. Phone detection cameras are in operation on New South Wales roads. 
Hello. So if you're driving and illegally handle your mobile phone, you can stop it or cop it. Discussing national and international issues. This is the David Curtin Show on today's News Talk TNT. Hello, welcome back to the David Curtin Show. This is today's News Talk TNT. And I am absolutely delighted to have with me today on the show, Jay Bhattacharya, who is a professor of uh, health policy at Stanford University in California, USA, and also is well known as one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, which was so good in bringing attention to the horrors of a blanket lockdown, which was imposed around the world. Um, Professor Bhattacharya, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, David. It's a delight to be on. I thank you so much for coming. And uh, um, I know that you you wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, which was fantastic. Um, when did you start to realize that the whole lockdown um, scenario that was being imposed on everyone was something that was wrong? I mean, that was my first reaction to when I first heard of lockdown in March of 2020. Uh, at that time, I, there were certain scientific facts I didn't know. I thought nobody knew, which is how deadly and widespread were the disease already at the time. And so I did some studies and that led me to, and I, I knew about the harms of lockdown. The only question in my mind was, was maybe, maybe it, it was, it might've, it might've worked. But th those scientific findings led me to the conclusion that we, it, the disease was actually already quite widespread by April of 2020. And certainly by October of 2020, when we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, the harms of lockdown far outweighed the uh, putative benefits of, of which there seemed to be none. Yeah, I would have said the same thing. I mean, in the UK, we had this man, Professor Ferguson, and he did what I would call some dodgy modelling. And he said to the MPs in Parliament, if you don't lock down, uh, 520,000 people in the UK are going to die. But on the day that they pushed that through the Parliament, he actually changed his modelling and said, oh, no, it's not going to be 520,000 people. It'll only be 50,000 people. But by then it was too late. They'd all gone away on their holiday. And um, the rest is history. And then the, the lockdown was in place. I mean, did you have any similar kind of dodgy modeling um, back then in the USA, but also through the years as we've gone on. Oh, absolutely. In fact, that that same modeler uh, had a model for the United States, the, the Imperial College model uh, of Neil Ferguson estimated that 2 million people would die within two or three months of uh, unless lockdown happened. I actually personally spoke with President Trump in July of 2020, or August of 2020, and he told me that essentially that that's what he was told, that if he did not lock down the United States of America, 2 million people would die. Uh, that model had a tremendous effect on the minds of politicians absolutely everywhere. And if you look and see, okay, does, was it really dodgy? Here's how you can see it was dodgy. The model predicted, the implication of the model was that I, I think something like 100,000 people would die in Sweden within a, a month or two unless they locked down in April of 2020 or March of 2020. Of course, Sweden didn't lock down and they didn't have 100,000 deaths within a month. When you have a scientific, when you have a fact contradict a theory, the theory dies, the fact wins. Mm, indeed, yeah. Then you made the Great Barrington Declaration, which was a really great statement of why we shouldn't do this. We should just protect the vulnerable, the people that were perhaps most susceptible for from COVID, from getting severe symptoms, but let everybody else get on with their lives. But there was a lot of hostility 
to that, which was incredibly surprising given that there'd already been six months of data and everyone could probably see that this was not working, the lockdowns weren't working. I think uh, you were called a, a fringe epidemiologist by uh, some people in power. Were, were you surprised at the hostility to you and uh, your fellow professors in writing the Great Barrington Declaration? I mean, I knew there would be some uh, some hostility from some some corners. What I didn't expect was that the most uh, like the sort of the central authorities, people like uh, Tony Fauci or the the head of the National Institute of Health, uh, Francis Collins, who wrote that infamous email calling me and Sunetra Gupta and Martin Kuldor fringe epidemiologists. I didn't expect that. I expected a constructive engagement because we were po pointing something out that was absolutely true: that there were children, poor people, working class, vast numbers of people really harmed by lockdown. They really, they, it seemed like they didn't care about the well-being and health of those people at all. And, and furthermore, you're absolutely right, David. The idea that the lockdowns had worked, well, I mean, look, the the, the disease had spread everywhere despite the lockdowns in uh, early 2020, certainly all through all through Europe and all through North America and all through South America and all through South Asia. Every place that uh, had any uh, semblance of a, of a lockdown, I mean, you you could squint and say, "Oh, it worked in 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 uh, in in the South Pacific on remote islands," but it didn't work anywhere uh, in the in the developed world or much of the developing world. So, yeah, the lockdowns really had failed to to actually protect people against COVID, and and they had and we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration to encourage more creative thinking about how best to protect vulnerable older people, and uh, but the, the unfortunately the center rejected that idea. Today, there, there still seems to be some pressure from some people to bring back another lockdown. There's almost like some people who, who had that at the time, they loved the power that they gave them. And we continually hear new narratives of monkeypox and uh, Alaska pox this week, and there may be bubonic plague in Oregon. Uh, it seems that people are trying to talk up these things so that they can bring in these measures again. I mean, did you think there's any danger of there being another lockdown scenario with with people trying to manufacture this and bring it in again I, I think that there's quite a danger of that in fact i think that lockdown is the standard now for how we think about managing uh large-scale respiratory virus uh threats uh, i think that that many people who i mean i don't know that they necessarily started this way but they they benefited from lockdown there was a, a massive upward uh, transfer of wealth, uh, huge amounts of power, of course, gained by politicians who locked down. You know, it was popular to lock down in 2020. Um, and, and it was fear, as you rightly point out, as the basis of that. It is very likely that this is the standard template. And so if, for instance, if you are, uh, it, it's, it's very likely that in, in your future, uh, your children will be locked out of school at some point if there's another uh, set of facts that something like what happened that the 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 template for lockdown is I think set in place. What do we have to do to break that thinking to break that model? Because clearly it isn't it isn't the right thing. It didn't work. You've done lots of work on it. Lots of other people have done lots of work. We've got data. We know that it doesn't work now. You know because an um, an epidemic spreads so quickly normally that by the time you actually do something like a lockdown, it's too late. Like you said, I mean, but as you say, that the people that like the idea they either benefit from it financially or they benefit from it socially. I mean, you have um, 
you know, the people who work in the civil service in the government, they can all go home and work on their laptops and they can have a whale of a time just being at home. They don't have to commute. They can work shorter hours and they still get paid for it. But normal people still have to go out and work. You know, if you're a working man or a working woman, you know, you you fix uh, people's plumbing or you deliver things, you still have to go out to work. Um, it, it seems to me that you've got this class of people, like you say, who benefit from it. How do we get the upper hand over them? I think uh, one thing is that they're not the majority of the population. The vast majority of the population, say 70% of the population, would ben do not have any benefit at all from lockdown, just, just harm. Uh, and so uh, they don't, they're not the majority. The unfortunate fact is that they have a political majority in many places. There doesn't seem to be a political coalition that cleanly says we should not lock down. I think that political movements throughout the West ought to embrace this idea that public health responses ought to have uh, a measure to them. They shouldn't be uni uni uniformly focused on one threat, but they should take the health of all people and all public health and all health threats seriously. Uh, that they should consider cost and benefits. That the that the decisions should not be made by a relatively small group of scientists. We should reestablish scientific debate and discussion at the centerpiece of this kind of decision making. These should all become part of a political movement. It has to be because you know the way we live our lives. Politics is supposed to help with that. It's supposed to to set us free from uh, the kind of of authoritarian power that we saw during the the pandemic. Not a subject. To us to it. And it's very become very clear that public health has the opposite orientation. So I think political movements everywhere should should be forced to embrace the idea that this authoritarian power should never be used again against us the way it was during the pandemic. You know, I totally agree. And you know, obviously, in, I'm in the UK, I've set up the Heritage Party, I set it up at the very beginning of the lockdown period. And we've got a specific policy that there would be no more lockdowns, and there should be no coercion to take what I call experimental injections, sometimes called vaccines. And um, uh, they, everyone should have medical autonomy. And I, I think, you know, we, we embrace that there are political parties in a number of countries that, that do that. How about in the United States? I mean, if you've got any specific party? I mean, the, you, you're really stuck with two big parties, so you don't have much of a choice there. But how, how is there a political movement there in the USA to um, uh, to, to create some you know, policy or movement uh, in the political sphere, which uh, would be against uh, any kind of lockdowns happening in the future? I think within both political parties, there are substantial movements along those lines, although neither, I think, yet have the upper hand. Uh, in the Republican Party, for instance, this is embodied, I think, by Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who opposed lockdowns and worked very hard to dismantle them within a state. Um, in the Democratic Party, there is uh, RFK Jr., the, you know, the, the I think that's the, 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 uh, 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 the, the presidential candidate, the Democratic presidential candidate. Uh, unfortunately, the, the most powerful politician in the United States, President Biden, seems completely in in line with the lockdown idea. And it's, mm -hmm. it's just unfortunate because I think a lot of the Democratic Party has gone along with that. But in the Republican Party, you had President Trump who's kind of ambiguous about this. He seems, uh, on, on the one hand, he's obviously very been very skeptical of lockdown. He certainly at the time has seemed that way, even though he imposed them. But at the same time, he I think he's reluctant to admit that the, the decisions that he made about the lockdowns were the wrong ones. Um, and mm -hmm. so within both political parties, it seems like there's a fight going on over the, the, the future of public health.
Yeah. What well, also? What's your opinion of the um, vaccines or injections, if you like, that came in after lockdowns? They were touted as by some people as a way out. Um, my, my personal opinion is that uh, they should never have been um, postulated uh, as something because they didn't have any long-term safety testing. But well, what's your opinion of those things? Well, you know, I think it's it's uh, it's subtle and complicated. So for for one, I think the idea that we should lock down would never have been embraced if the possibility of having a product like the mRNA vaccines or the the, the AstraZeneca vaccine had not been in you know in, in, on the horizon, because people would have said, oh, was, if there's no way out, right? So the even just the very presence of the technology enabled people to want to lock down. Right to, to even entertain as an idea, and now I think that's why partly why the lockdown ideology is is enshrined is that oh we have this technology within just a few months we can develop it why not lock down until we get the new new vac vaccine that's what will happen in the next big pandemic, um, so I think in that sense it's a it's, it's there's a negative there there is also a, a you know a hope what if it had worked what if it had been a, a completely safe vaccine with no side effects that had stopped transmission. Right, so that that's that's certainly a good thing. Everybody would like that. Um, but the thing that you point out is absolutely the most important thing, and this is true not just for these vaccines. It's true for every vaccine. Every vaccine has potential side effects that takes a long time to learn about. Uh, there's processes for learning about them over time uh, by you know you you use them on on some on on first on very, you know, small populations the more you learn about them if they if it works well in those populations expand out it's a more conservative process for learning about vaccine use um here uh, during the pandemic all of that gets thrown aside and there's tremendous pressure to force people to take this uh, as an experiment even before we know a lot about the the long-term safety data and i think that's what happened here there were a number of promises made about this vaccine, about, about its efficacy and its safety that were not turned out not to be true. Specifically, the vaccine doesn't stop you from getting or, or spreading COVID. That turned out to be a lie. And many, many mandates were put in their place, and many people lost their jobs and careers over, over, this, over this idea. And certainly, there were side effects. Young men got uh, uh, myocarditis at, I think, at unacceptably high rates, you know, one in 5,000, I don't know, whatever it is, it's it's too high for the benefit that they got from the vaccine. But I think a lot of it is just, it's, it's a mix of both promise and also tragedy. And, and as a consequence, a lot of people have lost faith in vaccines uh, that are safe and effective. And it's, I, I just, I think it's just very unfortunate. I mean, this brings into a wider question, you know, but I have a science background as well. Uh, I'm, I'm not as much of an eminent scientist as you, but I'm actually shocked at how science, the process of science, the normal scientific method has been completely undermined uh, over the whole COVID and injection period. Um, do, do you have concerns about that as well? I mean, have you, you've seen science just changed and become politicized and uh, beholden to ideologies rather than people actually trying to find out, you know, observed empirical facts and data. Uh, what, what's your opinion of that? David, we're, unfortunately, I think we are in a new dark age. We are in an age where a man uh, at the top of the scientific bureaucracy, some, Tony Fauci, can unironically say to the public that if you contradict me, you're not simply quest questioning a man, you're questioning science itself. I mean, imagine the hubris of that to think of himself as a pope of science and then be taken seriously by scientists and by the public at large. 
Um, that's a, that's a new dark age, a dark, an age where science will brook no opposition, will not permit no debate. Uh, there's just there's just orthodoxy and heresy, uh, and I think uh, that is a major problem for science generally. Yeah, it is an absolute shock. I, I, I can't stand this, and I really hate the way that science has been undermined. Look, Jay Bhattacharya, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I'd love to have you back on the show again, um, but this is all we've got time for today. This is today's News Talk, TNT. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.